Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. Well, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles or scroll or click or whatever you do to get to a Bible passage uh, to the Gospel of John, the 20th chapter, John chapter 20. Last week we saw after the long, dark, sad, lonely weekend of Sabbath after Jesus' crucifixion, we saw the disciples discovering that the tomb was empty and Jesus made his first resurrection appearance to Mary Magdalene. You remember she was concerned that somebody had taken his body away, and so she was weeping by the grave, and she was confused, and she even saw a couple of angels, and she just asked them, hey, where's Jesus' body? And then she saw who she presumed to be a gardener, was actually the Lord, but she didn't recognize him at first. And she said, where have you taken him? I'll go and get his body. Just let me know where he is. And he said to her, Mary, just her name. And she immediately recognized him as her Lord and Savior. And she called out to him, teacher, Rabboni. And so then he said, okay, go and tell the other disciples that I'm alive and that I'm about to go back to my father and your father, my God and your God. And so Mary essentially is the first evangelist, the first commissioned evangelist of the risen Christ and goes to the other disciples in verse 18. And she announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. I've seen the Lord. And so our passage continues. The journey with the disciples and the, the, the resurrection of Christ continues today. Uh, And we'll start in verse 19, and we'll get down to the end of chapter 20. So Jesus is going to make a couple of key appearances in our verses today, and we'll find that he has a very specific purpose in mind for these appearances, in addition to some just kind, merciful, pastoral um, words for his disciples. So I'm going to read verses 19 through 31. So if you would follow along with me in your copy of the scriptures, and I'm going to ask you out of reverence for the word of God to stand. We don't do this every week, but I think sometimes it's good to be reminded that we're hearing God's word. So let's stand together as I read verses 19 through 31 of John chapter 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were, For fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. 
Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen. You may be seated. You've heard those last couple of verses a few times, haven't you? I heard some quoting along with those verses. So we have here essentially Jesus appearing to his disciples and giving them some final instructions. And we see in the way this unfolds really our mission, our obstacle, and then our goal, our final ultimate goal. The mission, the obstacle, and the goal. So the mission comes to us in these first few verses as Jesus appears to his disciples on the evening of that day. So we're still on Easter Sunday, the very first Easter Sunday when Jesus rose from the dead. And that morning he had appeared to Mary and Mary had gone and told the disciples, I've seen the Lord. So now some hours have passed and it's that evening. The disciples are gathered uh, in a room. It doesn't tell us exactly where they are, but they are locked into the room. They are afraid, which is understandable because they have been the closest followers of Jesus for the three years of his public ministry and the religious and, po- and political leaders of Israel have just had him killed. So it's reasonable for them to think, maybe we're next, right? Maybe they're going to come after us and just root out this whole Jesus movement and by just killing all of his followers. Not an unreasonable conclusion for them to draw. And so they are afraid and they are hiding. They are locked into a room by themselves. It's a little interesting because you might think they've been sitting now on the news for several hours at least, the better part of the day. They've been sitting on the news that Jesus is alive and at least that Mary has seen him. Now, whether they're debating among themselves, did did Mary really see what she thinks she saw or whatever, we don't know. doesn't tell us that. But nevertheless, they've heard the news that Jesus has risen And here they sit, locked inside this room, 
together. And so the first thing that stands out as we see Jesus appear among them is that he patiently, mercifully engages them in their fear. He comes to them in their fear. While they're hiding away, he comes to them. Now, of course, we see as well that this is a miraculous appearing. The resurrected Jesus in his body, though it is a physical body, he even tells his disciples in Luke chapter 24, he eats with them and he says, you can see that I have flesh and bone and a spirit doesn't have flesh and bone like I have. So he's not some ethereal floating ghost-like version of himself. He is a physical embodied Jesus, even in his resurrection. However, he is able to do some pretty interesting things, like I don't know if he passes through the door or if he just sort of materializes among them. We don't have a lot of details about how that happens. However, they're behind locked doors, and suddenly Jesus stands in the midst of them. So we should right away go, okay, that's unusual. That's something that only the Son of God in his risen form can do. So we recognize that Jesus is miraculously among his people. And he knows that they're afraid. He knows that they're panicked and that they're hiding and that they don't know what might happen. And so what's the first thing he says to them? Peace. Peace be with you. Which is kind. Which is pastoral engagement. You're afraid and I'm offering you, bringing you peace. But it's more, it's more than just, hey, calm down. It's more than just don't be afraid. It is a specific fulfillment, if you will, of what he had already promised them. In his farewell sermon to them, back in chapter 14, he had told them in verse 27, after he's told them, I'm going back to the Father, the Helper will come to you. He says, verse, chapter 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus knew that they would be afraid. He knew indeed that they would have much reason to fear because they would have enemies. And he's already warned them, the world is going to hate you just like it's hated me. So he knows that they're afraid. And even before he goes to the cross, he tells them, I leave you my peace. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let them be afraid. And even a little bit later in that speech in chapter 16, verse 33, he said to them, I have said these things to you, that is all these warnings and what's going to happen and how you'll, I'm going away and all this. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And now, Standing in their midst is Jesus having overcome the darkness and power of the grave. And he brings to them his very presence. I leave with you my peace. And so now he says to them as he stands among them, peace be with you. Jesus fulfills the promise of peace that he made to them. He also had promised them in that same farewell speech that they would be glad, that joy would return to them in warning them about his uh, death and his, uh, that he would be leaving them for this period of time. He said back in chapter 16, 
a little while you will see me no longer, right? So he's talking about I'm going to die, I'm going to be in the grave, and you will be without me. But then he says, truly I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. That's in the death of Jesus. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. (laughs) Sorrow because of the pains and difficulty of childbirth. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now in the death, in the absence of Jesus, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. So look what happens there after Jesus appears to them In verse 20, he said, peace be with you. And then he shows them his hands and his side, demonstrating that it's really him. I've got the wounds still. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. The joy that Jesus had spoken of has met them again. Just as he knew they'd be afraid, he brings peace. Just as he knew that they would be sad, sorrowful, mourning over his death and his absence, he now brings them the joy that he promised that he would. Your joy will return and no one will take your joy from you. Because listen, if your Savior, if your Master can conquer death and come back from it, what do you have to fear? What do you have that could possibly come against you to conquer you? I have overcome the world, he told them. Take heart. So he brings peace. He brings joy. And he readily presents himself to them and shows them his wounds, knowing perhaps that they would need the the benefit of sight to, to realize that he had truly risen from the dead and maybe to take Mary at her word as she had said, I have seen the Lord. And so then we have... This commissioning. Jesus is going to say to his disciples, I've got a mission for you. I have a job for you to do. And John's recording of this, and and Jesus probably said this in different ways, perhaps at different times in his last days before he ascended to heaven. And so Matthew gives us one version and Luke gives us a version, right? So we have different kind of expressions of this mission. But so the way that John tells us what Jesus says, look in verse uh, 21. He says again, peace be with you. That's the second time. Then he says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. How did the Father send Jesus? He sent Jesus to fulfill his will. He had work for him to do. He had a kingdom for him to announce. He had sin for him to bear and then death for him to defeat. And so he had this mission for Jesus to fulfill. Well, it's fulfilled. It's done. Just like Jesus said as he was dying on the cross back in chapter 19, verse 29, or verse 30, it is finished. That is, it is accomplished. So the work that Jesus had come to do has now been done. And so now when he says, just like the Father sent me, With this mission to the world, I am in the same way sending you. You will carry on my work in the world. And so he tells his disciples that you have this job to do. You have work 
to continue in the world. But he doesn't just say, you've got this job to do. He's going to give them the resources they need in order to fulfill it. It wouldn't be a very good boss who says, you've got all this stuff to do. I've got this big project. You've got to get it taken care of. Here's your deadline. Go get them without giving you any instructions or tools or awareness of how they're to go about the job or the resources needed to figure out how to make it happen. And so Jesus commissions them, go, go into the world. We'll talk more about the content of the mission in just a second. Go, just as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And then, verse 22, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And we remember, going back through John's Gospel, that this has been a steady theme. The Spirit of God imparted to the people of God and empowering them for the work that He's given them to do has appeared throughout the Gospel. Back in John 1, verse 33... As Jesus was baptized, John the Baptist said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. So the Spirit of God uniquely empowered and embodied the life and the ministry of Jesus. Jesus had the anointing presence of the Holy Spirit throughout his earthly ministry. That's how John the Baptist recognized him as the Son of God. He's the one that is anointed with the Holy Spirit. And so now we skip ahead back to chapter 20, verse 22, and Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. It's as though he's conferring upon them the same presence, the same anointing of the Holy Spirit to carry out the work that he's calling them to do. I've been anointed by the Holy Spirit and I've done the work of my Father, the mission of God in the world. Now I'm sending you just as the Father sent me. What does that mean? It means, at least in part, with the Holy Spirit given to you. Just as the Holy Spirit rested on me, anointed me for the work he called me to do, he now will rest on you. Actually, we'll find out later. He will be in you, just as Jesus himself promised. So, going back again to his farewell speech or sermon to them, he had multiple times promised them that the Holy Spirit would come. Even as he would be departing, he urged them not to be afraid because he would send them another helper. Chapter 14, verse 16, I will ask the Father, And he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. And then he told them again in chapter 16, verse 33, I have said these things to you. That's not the right verse. Yeah, I was looking at the wrong thing. I'm sorry. In chapter 15, verse 26, he says, 
When the helper comes, the helper being the Holy Spirit, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. So the Spirit will come, he will bear witness of Christ, and in the Spirit's bearing witness, the disciples would then bear witness. And then finally, in chapter 16, verses 7 and 8, he said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Which, that would have sounded surprising to them. Why is it to our advantage that you're gone? Mike, we've been with you for three years. What are we going to do now? He says, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So I'm sending you to do the work that I've been doing, to continue announcing the kingdom of God, to continue announcing the life that's available in me by faith, but I'm not going to make you do the heavy lifting, so to speak. You've got to do the work of announcing. You've got to carry the message. But the one who convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, you can't do that. You don't have the resources for that. So receive the Holy Spirit. And he's the one who convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And so he gives them the mission to carry on his work. And then he empowers them. He gives them the resources to do it by giving the Holy Spirit. Now, I believe, and there are people who think differently and disagree with me on this, I believe that this is a sort of a a symbolic, kind of a a visual parable of the giving of the Holy Spirit. Because I think we need to make sure that Scripture is in harmony with Scripture in the way that we understand it. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus tells his disciples, go and wait to receive power from on high. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, then you'll be my witnesses. And then if you continue reading in Acts, Acts chapter 2 records the Holy Spirit coming upon this room full of followers of Jesus, and they begin powerfully proclaiming the works of God. And that's where Peter stands up and preaches this sermon on the day of Pentecost, and some 2,000 or 3,000, I can't remember, maybe 3,000 people were saved through this sermon. I've never preached a sermon so effective. At any rate, so he preaches and 3,000 people are saved. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has come upon them and empowered them for ministry. Not because Peter was such a great preacher. Not because Peter's speech was so clever and articulate and winsome. It was because it was empowered by the Holy Spirit. He didn't say, Peter, you got to go save everybody. He said, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. He's the one that's going to do that work in people's hearts. All you do is be faithful. You speak the words. And so I believe that what we see happening in John 20, verse 22, is a foreshadowing or, or, or a promising, a visual representation of what will come shortly after he has ascended and the Holy Spirit comes upon them to live in them. So this is kind of a visual parable, if you will. We would all recognize that the Holy Spirit is not breath. So when Jesus breathes on them, it's not like the Spirit was somehow 
riding on the breath of Jesus. And so there's, there's some level of symbolism at play even in the act of him breathing upon them in saying, receive the Spirit. So I think if you're willing to accept that much, it's not too hard to think this is, this is simply a, a foreshadowing, a foretelling of the, the power that will come to them when the Holy Spirit indwells them. There are other opinions on that. If you differ with that, I'd be glad to talk with you afterward. Uh, but, so I think this is a symbolic uh, promise of the Holy Spirit. But that theme continues then throughout this, you can see it carrying throughout this encounter where Jesus appears to his disciples and he said, just as I promised you peace, now I bring you peace. Just as I promised you, your sorrow would turn to joy, now I bring you joy and you are glad when you see me. And just as I promised you the Holy Spirit would come to you here, I at least symbolically show you that the Holy Spirit is coming to you to empower you for witness. Much of the content of the witness here, I think, comes to us in verse 23, which might be a little bit of a head scratcher at first. Look at verse 23 with me. Jesus says to the disciples, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. The sense being there that whatever you do on earth is affirmed by heaven. If you grant forgiveness, heaven grants forgiveness. If you withhold forgiveness, heaven has withheld forgiveness. That's essentially what he is saying here. So that makes it sound like, okay, so Jesus has now just conferred upon the disciples, and perhaps by extension all of his followers, the authority to forgive sins and to refuse to forgive sins. So you might be going, what in the world does that mean? Because that doesn't sound very Christian, right? Uh, no, I'm not going to forgive you. Uh, yeah, okay, I will forgive you. Is that what Christians are supposed to be doing? Is that what the ministry of the word is about? Well, of course not. So uh, we, there's a few things that we need to say to kind of figure out what's, what's going on here. And then we've got to look kind of between the lines. Number one is the authority that Jesus grants here is not an absolute authority, nor is it an individual authority. He doesn't say each one of you get to choose whether somebody is forgiven or not forgiven. He is speaking collectively to the disciples, I believe thereby also to the, the church, the seed of the church the people of God. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a delegated authority. It's God's authority to forgive sin. So he delegates some of that authority to the church collectively, not to individual Christians. And then I think you've got to do a little bit of intertext stuff here. And you've got to look at, at similar statements that Jesus makes to his disciples in other places. Two verses in particular come to mind from the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has just asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they are like, well, some people say that you're, you know, Elijah, and some people say that you're a prophet. And then he says, well, who do you say that I am? And, G and Peter speaks up and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him in response, blessed are you for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And then in verse 18 of Matthew 16, and I tell you, you are Peter, the name meaning rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. 
And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So we have this binding and loosing going on. Jesus seems to have conferred this authority not upon Peter the person, but upon the community of saints with that confession. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ. And so that confessing community then has the keys given to them by which they can bind and loose. What in the world does that mean? We have the same language in Matthew 18, just a couple chapters later, as Jesus is speaking in the context of how to respond within the church community when somebody is sinning, right? He says, go to your brother and tell him his fault. If he listens, you've won your brother. If he refuses to listen, go with two or three. If he refuses to listen, then tell it to the church, right? So you're bringing this, this issue before the entire church and calling him to repent. And if he won't listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So the context there is, this is someone who claims to be a Christian who is not living in repentance, who's refusing, in fact, to repent of his sins, even when the entire church collectively says, repent, you're in sin. And so he says, if the person refuses even to respond to the entire church, calling him to repent, you should regard him as a tax collector and a Gentile. In other words, not a Christian. You should not treat that guy like he really believes in me. Because if he did, he'd be repenting. Then he says in Matthew 18, 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he says, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So this opens a bigger discussion and a bigger topic for another day or series of conversations. But I think what you see happening in John 20, 23, is Jesus conferring upon the church, that is the community of confessing Christians, those who recognize Jesus as the Christ and the risen and living and reigning Son of God. He confers upon them the authority, the keys of the kingdom, to use his Jesus' language in Matthew, 8, uh, Matthew 16. He confers upon them the authority to welcome into the community and to see out of the community those who do or do not confess faith in Christ. I recognize that as a big mouthful. Here's how I would boil this down. The giving and withholding of forgiveness, which is in view in verse 23, where he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you withhold the forgiveness of any, it is withheld. The giving and withholding of forgiveness of sins happens primarily, I think, in two ways in the life of the church. Number one, the preaching of the gospel, which is essentially the announcement that there is forgiveness of sins. Praise God. There is forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. He has borne your sin on the cross. He suffered your penalty in your place so that your sin could be not just sort of like smeared over or, uh, you know, we don't talk about it as much. It's been forgiven. It's gone. It's erased. That's what forgiven means. When you forgive a debt, you wipe it off the books. It's gone. You don't owe it anymore. 
There is forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. And the goal and the mission of the church, as Jesus gives it here, is to proclaim forgiveness of sins. There is forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ. And so the first way that the church sort of carries out this granting or withholding of forgiveness is simply an announcing there is forgiveness of sins. So through the preaching of the gospel. And then secondly, the church does this, I think, through the administration of the ordinances. That is through baptism and the Lord's Supper. When we baptize people, we say, we recognize this person to be a true confessor of Christ. Right? Baptism says, this person trusts Jesus and has made a credible profession of faith in him. And the Lord's Supper is the sort of family meal whereby that, uh, that position within the community is affirmed repeatedly every time you do it. And by the same token, to go back to Matthew 18, when someone is removed from that community because of their continual refusal to repent, the church is withdrawing their corporate affirmation of that person's faith in Christ. So I don't think Jesus is saying here, you should all now go about individually, arbitrarily absolving some people of their sins and withholding forgiveness from others. I like you, I'll forgive you your sins. I don't like you as much. Uh, You've done too much. Not going to forgive your sin. That's not our job. That's not the job of the church. It's not the job of individual Christians. Our job is preach the gospel, announce that there is forgiveness of sins through the life and death and resurrection of Christ. And then as a church to faithfully and intentionally and diligently recognize those who are confessing faith in Christ and welcome them into the body of believers by their confession. And then at times seeing them out of that body of believers by their apparent rejection of it. Okay, that's a lot. That is a topic for a long conversation. But I hope, hope you see what's in view here. When Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And he empowers them with the Spirit, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he gives them the authority to forgive or withhold forgiveness. What he's saying is, I am entrusting you with the message of forgiveness. I'm entrusting you with the message that if you will repent of your sins and trust in Christ, you can have eternal life. Carry that message faithfully and then live it out together as a community of believers in the church. I think that's what he's getting at. So, we have a job to do. I think that this commission to the disciples, by extension, is relevant for all Christians and all churches. I think every true church of Jesus Christ carries the very same task, the same mission. To go to an unbelieving world, a broken and sinful world, and to announce that there is forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ, which is such incredibly good news. We brush past it so quick. Sins are forgiven, yada yada. It's unbelievable that our sins are forgiven. God is holy and righteous and cannot just look past sin can't just sweep it under the rug and act like it doesn't exist, can't just go, well, I think you're a good-hearted guy, but you've just done a few things I don't approve of, so I'll just overlook 
the bad stuff because I know that your heart is really in the right place. God can't do that and continue to be God. God is holy and sin is an offense to him. Sin is an injustice in the way that we spurn him and insult him and say, I don't want you, I want my own glory or my own joy or my own pleasure or my own fulfillment or whatever it is, just like Adam and Eve did back in the garden where God said, you've got everything you need and you've got a relationship with me. What more could you want? And they went, well, that fruit looks pretty good. And they rebelled. They rejected God. You're not enough for me. I want what that fruit gives. Knowledge, wisdom, right? And so they rejected him. And in the same way, we reject God all the time. That's what sin is. Sometimes we boil, when we're kind of defining sin, we boil sin down to like disobedience. We sin when we disobey God, which is true. But the reason that disobeying God is a sin is that it's a rejection of him. At the root of it, sin is a rejection of God and his lordship over us. I don't want it. I don't want to be restrained by what you say. I don't want to live by your rules. I've heard people say things like that. You may have said things like that yourself. And at the root of each heart, we're all in the same boat. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does that mean? It means we've all rejected him. We've all gone, I don't want your ways. I don't want you. You're not enough. I want my own thing. I want my own glory or joy or pleasure or whatever it is. And then it's not too hard to find books and blogs and tools and conferences that'll just feed that idolatry in ourselves. Just do what you want. Dream what, you're responsible for your own dream, right? Who can, nobody can tell you what you can and can't be. I don't think that's true. I think God gets to tell me what I can and can't be. And I think when I reject his plan, when I reject his wisdom, when I reject his commands, I'm rejecting him. So this is what we've done in our sin. We've placed ourselves under his wrath, the just penalty for our sin, because we've rejected him. And so the message that we have as Christians, the message that we have as the church, if you can cut through the fog and get people to see what's clearly at stake here, the message we have is unbelievably good news. In Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness of sin. God is willing to forget that you insulted him, that you rejected him, that you sent him away. If you'll just trust in Christ, because Jesus took care of all of it for you. Jesus bore the penalty for that rejection in himself on the cross. And then, by the way, he defeated death and stood up again. If you'll just go, yeah, I'm with him, your sins are forgiven. It's incredible news. That's the message that we have as the church of Jesus Christ, and we must be careful with it to guard it and keep it intact, and we must be faithful with it to speak it and to share it and to bring it into the lives of those around us, because we're surrounded, let's be honest, I'm not going to keep going in the text, by the way, you're probably all looking at the clock going, oh my gosh, how's it going to finish? I'm not, I'm stopping right here. Next week, we'll pick up at verse 24. Um, 
But you are surrounded by people every single day. Some of them may be in your family. Some of them are probably sitting in a, at a desk next to you at work. Some of them live in the houses right next to you. Some of them you're shopping with and crossing, uh, crossing their paths all day long. You are surrounded by people every day who are under the wrath of God, whose sins are not forgiven because they haven't trusted in Jesus Christ and repented of their sins. It's really that simple when it comes down to it. The message that the church has is if you will repent of your sins and trust in Jesus and what he accomplished by dying in your place and rising to new life, your sins are forgiven and you can have new and eternal life. So we've got to be ready to carry that message. And we've got to hold each other accountable to carrying that message and to living it out and to finding and taking opportunities to speak of Christ and to invite people into this shared life and the forgiveness of sins. And remember, you don't have to save anybody because the one who convicts hearts concerning sin and righteousness and judgment is the Holy Spirit. He does that work. But guess what? He lives in you. He empowers your words. When you speak the gospel to somebody, the Holy Spirit is right there, empowering you, empowering your words to penetrate hearts and to open blind eyes. So let's pray and plead with God to give us the strength to be faithful in this task. And let's lean with all our might on the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in us to enable us to stay faithful to this task. Let's pray.